0: Then we'll turn to our text, which is really not a text. Um, so it's all say later. It's more of a um, place of beginning for us in the book of Revelation, but we will be reading the first chapter of Revelation as well. We begin in our readings in Zechariah 12. And verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and they shall weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, There will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and the wives by themselves. And all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified by, uh, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John... Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to, his, uh, to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, or we could translate this, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. We turn to our psalm of preparation, 119W, in the book of Psalms for singing. Pray together to seek God's blessing on the preaching and hearing of His Word. Lord, even as we have expressed to you, as we have sung, so we confess now that we need your help to understand your Word, to know with all truth what you have written in your word and to apply it in our souls. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would indeed be near to us to help because we do long for your salvation, because we rejoice in your word, and because we so often stray from the truth of your word. So help us now. Help us not to forget your commandments. Help us to see, to understand, to know through the active work of the Holy Spirit within us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've been threatening for some time now to begin preaching through the book of Revelation. Um, probably for so long that some of you wondered if I would ever actually get to the the book of Revelation. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, here we are. And it comes uh, as a consequence of uh, many years of of preparation. Um, Studies in seminaries, uh, in seminary rather, um, 25 years ago or more, um, and study uh, that I've taken up myself early in my ministry. Um, I spent a week of study leave looking at the millennial views, which we won't talk about today, but um, which are important, um, whether or not you think they are. They do indeed have an impact on the way we think and pray and serve in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then more recently, last October, I took a week of study leave to uh, prepare for this very introduction, uh, even though I'd been praying, preparing for a long time for this introduction. A week is nothing, I can tell you that, to prepare for, uh, to, even to introduce the book of Revelation. It's It's nothing. Uh, And so it's with some uh, difficulty that that I have sought to squeeze what I have squeezed into this introductory sermon, decided what to say and what not to say, what to include and what not to include, even though I'm going to sneak some of the things that I haven't included today later on as we work through this uh, important final book of the Bible. Now there are... uh, We could say there are two extremes when it comes to the book of Revelation. One is an infatuation with the book of Revelation as prophecy. And I'm sure that you have known people as I have known people who are infatuated with the book of Revelation, seeking to discern what the book of Revelation says about the the last day, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are uh, frustrated with the book of Revelation. And every time, they, they, if, they, if you are reading through your Bible every year, which I encourage you to do, uh, when you come to the book of Revelation, what goes through your mind is, here we go again, I'm going to read all these confusing things that I, I don't really fully understand. Uh, and it can be frustrating but let me encourage you to keep working because it is uh, an important book, and one of the things that I hope to show you is that the book of Revelation isn't a... um, Yes, it does contain some things, uh, so many symbols that are difficult to interpret, difficult to understand, but it's a very pastoral, practical book in the life of the church. In these... Early things in these introductory things, we'll be talking about some things that are technical. And I make no apologies for that because I think in order to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand some technicalities that have to do with the interpretation of this book. The book of Revelation is sometimes called the Apocalypse, which means unveiling. Revelation is derived from the Latin, meaning to pull back the veil. And Apocalypse is derived from the Greek here in chapter 1 and verse 1 with the same meaning, to unveil. So when you come to the last book of the Bible, it's as though you're attending a stage play where the curtains are drawn and the audience can't see the scenery or the actors or the actresses or the props on the stage, and then the curtains are open so that you can see the stage and its scenery and its actors and actresses and the lights that are uh, focused on them, that's something we could say is a revelation or an apocalypse, an unveiling. And that's what's happening in the revelation to John, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, which our first verse calls it. There's so much about our our lives, about the world, about history, so much about the past, so much about the present, so much about the future that we can't see and that we can't understand. So this book pulls back the curtains so to speak. God is doing the curtain pulling, and he's showing us the essential meaning of many things that are important to us. What we see behind the curtain is Jesus Christ, the Lord of history, the sovereign God who is in full control of all the events of heaven and earth. Revelation lets us see Jesus in charge, where he's directing everything that's happening. Sometimes this idea of God's sovereignty is called into question, especially when disaster strikes, like on September 11th, or in the recent shooting in Uvalde, Texas, People ask, where was God? Where was God on 9-11? Where was God when those 19 children and uh, school teachers as well were shot in that elementary school in Texas? Revelation has the answer. Our God has always been and is now in sovereign control of everything in heaven and on earth. The seas, the sky, the land, including Satan and his dominion and his demons. That's where God was, is the answer to anyone who asks, where was God when that happened? The same place he was when he told John, of the meaning of life and history, the same place he is now, as he pulls back the curtains, separating our physical sight from the spiritual meaning of history's events. And since the Revelation, or the Apocalypse, is the final book in the Bible, there's no surprise, a certain finality to the things that are revealed here, the things that John writes. These are God's last words, in a sense, to his church until we see Jesus coming with the saints and the angels. As i alluded, this last sermon won't be an exposition of any Particular part of the prologue to the book in uh, verses 1 through 8 of this first chapter, or uh, of this section uh, in verses 9 through 20 of the first vision of the book. We'll talk about uh, an outline of this book uh, in a later sermon. Rather than dealing expositionally, we're we're simply going to deal with some introductory matters here. So more like a topical, textual sermon that addresses select points here in the first chapter and as well in the rest of the book. By way of introduction, we're going to look at three important questions that will help us to determine how to understand this book in its ancient historical context. These questions form the outline of the sermon today. In the first place, who wrote the book of Revelation? Not a trick question. Secondly, to whom was Revelation written? And thirdly, when was Revelation written? Who wrote the book of Revelation? To whom was Revelation written, and when was Revelation written? In a sense, we can say, in answer to this first question, who wrote the book of Revelation, that there are two answers. It's clear that John wrote the book of Revelation. Revelation. We're told that in here in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 4, 9 to 11 and 19, that the writer is a man named John. Church has always believed that this man identified here, this man named John, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. The same John who Jesus loved. The Gospel of John says, for whom Jesus had a particular love. The one who leaned on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, and the writer of the three epistles of John. John was one of three of our Lord's disciples, along with Peter and James, who were in the inner circle of, of our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. For example, these three, remember, exclusively witnessed the transfiguration. These three exclusively, they alone were with our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane when he agonized with the Lord over the work of the cross that was before him. Now, years later, John was banished to the island of Patmos. It's an island off modern-day Turkey, when, uh, which in those days was in a place called Asia Minor. And in particular, uh, in the eastern part uh, were these seven churches in a region called Asia, in the time of the life of the Apostle John. John was banished there because of a a terrible persecution that arose in the Christian church at, at that point in the first century. Much of the church leadership was martyred, including the Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, Apostle James. But for some reason, instead of killing John, they shipped him off, to the island of Patmos. We know why they didn't kill John and, and rather shipped him off. They shipped him off to this island where he was apparently made to uh, work in the mines. It was probably a Christian concentration camp. The church had spread rapidly. We know that from the record of The book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, had come down at Pentecost. And what had been prophesied began to take place. The gospel began to be effective in the hearts and minds of men and women and children. And the church began to multiply. Thousands upon thousands believed it multiplied exponentially. And that caught the attention of the Roman government. And the Roman government began to persecute the first-century church. As a consequence, the Jews at that time appeared to have been stirring up the Roman authorities to come out against the Christians. And when Christian leaders, or rather Christians, early Christians saw their leaders shipped off and beheaded or crucified upside down, they began to wonder if the church would survive. This great persecution that arose against the Lord and his people. And in a time of such persecution, the tendency can be to think that the Lord is forgotten. That he's forgotten his people. He doesn't care for his people even as we sometimes think, uh, think when, when we're going through tribulation in our own lives. That's evident from what the psalmists write, isn't it? And so in this time of hard testing for the church of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, from his throne in heaven, sends his only begotten Son, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, to that concentration camp with a message or vision of glorious encouragement to John. That's why John is clearly the human author. John is the one who put pen... Or quill to paper, or to scroll. The Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are authors of this church, uh, this this uh, revelation to to John. Jesus was was giving this revelation to John, telling him right, uh, what, what to write. That's clear as well, isn't it, from the very same verses that identify John as the author, verse 1, 11, 19. So this is a difficult time, and in the midst of this period of great tribulation, uh, it was no less than the divine Christ who was encouraging John, and through him, the persecuted church. Jesus himself speaks in this revelation to John. And when he speaks, he reveals what he's doing and what he's going to do. He's walking in the midst of the lampstands, he says here in this first chapter. That is in the midst of the persecuted churches, verse 13. He's reigning in them. He's the Alpha and the Omega Verse 8, the first and the last, verse 17. He's alive from the dead, verse 18. The living one who has the keys of death and Hades. I am the sovereign God. I am in control of everything that's happening, even the present persecution of the church. Jesus says, the one who conquered death and hell, says to John, And to his church, I am coming. I'm coming to judge unbelief and apostasy. And to conquer the unbelieving world. This is one of the grand themes of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, the one who goes forth as the conqueror in the midst of his church. And what does that mean? It means that his church goes forth, conquering with their Lord Jesus Christ. As he rides forth in conquest, we ride forth with him. As the church militant, Christ's revelation shows him conquering through a two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. Now, what's that? We know that the writer to the Hebrews calls God's word a two-edged sword, don't we? And what does that mean when we read here in the revelation of Jesus Christ? that he has a two-edged sword coming out of, a, out of his mouth, it means that he is conquering by his word. It means that when his word goes forth, Christ is going forth to conquer. It means that when his word is preached, that Christ is in the midst of, of his lampstands and he is conquering through the preached word as the word is proclaimed the face of the Lord Jesus Christ shines in the midst of the church Jesus is moving about in his church his face is shining in the church and his countenance is much stronger then the Son, verse 16. Jesus' face shines where the Word is truly preached, and it's a means by which He conquers sin and death and hell itself. So the one who wrote the book of Revelation was John, but the ultimate author of the book is the Lord of glory. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave To John. This brings us to one final observation as to the authorship of this book. The Holy Spirit is intimately involved in this revelation to John. And that's clear, as we shall see, in the repeated exhortation to each of the seven churches of Asia. Chapter 2, verses 7, 11, 17, 29. Chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22. Just read you one of those. In the conclusion to the message to Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is another prominent theme, not only uh, here in the messages to uh, the seven churches, but also in uh, the last section of the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, uh, the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. You can hear that dominant note of hearing the word of the Lord hearing what the Spirit says to the seven churches, and therefore hearing what the Spirit says to the church of Jesus Christ today. We'll say more about that in a later portion of the sermon. So, who wrote it? John wrote it, the Apostle John, the Triune God, wrote this book. Second, to whom was Revelation written? It's a question that can be answered actually quite briefly first it was written to the seven churches of Asia verse 1 says these seven churches that form a uh, horseshoe in Eastern uh, modern-day Eastern Turkey if you look at these churches you can uh, there it, it's an arc it really is is a horseshoe shape. Uh, where all these churches were located, and they were established during the second and third missionary campaigns of the Apostle Paul. All of these uh, listed here uh, in chapters 2 and 3, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all these um, were violently conquered many centuries ago by Islam. But before that, it was because of the Apostle Paul's labor, a predominantly Christian region. And although there were many more churches existing at that time in the world, these seven churches with all their peculiarity, represented all of God's people, all the true congregations of Jesus Christ in various parts of the world who were suffering under persecution. This is a message for all the early churches of John's day. It's written to these seven churches as representative of all the churches of John's day. And secondly, even though I'm going to suggest later that the message of, the, of Revelation to these churches was, uh, was at least partially fulfilled in the first century in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it nonetheless contains the eternal truth that comes through the experience of those early churches by the way that God ministered to them in this time of great persecution. That's what enabled them to overcome in that time. That's what enables us to overcome in our own time. And so whatever we say about whatever we go on to say about when the book of Revelation was written and when these events that Revelation describes took place, there's a universal application. We'll say more about this, Lord willing, next week. What God does in that historical situation in the first century is a picture of what he will do throughout all the ages of the believing church, especially when the church undergoes hard times. He's just as mighty, just as active, and just as interestedly intervening when the church is under persecution today which it is significantly and that means that this message is a message of great encouragement to Christ's church today so we've looked at who wrote it we've looked at to whom it was written lastly when that's a tricky question it's a complex question concerning which good Christian scholarship disagrees one Indicator of the date of the writing is that it was written during a time of great persecution. That's evident even by what's said in this first chapter, isn't it? It's a time of tribulation. John says that in verse 9 I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So this is a time when the church is seeing significant. Persecution. And that's led scholars to conclude that it was written near the end of the Roman Emperor Nero's reign, AD 54 to 68, or during Domitian's reign, AD 81 to 96. I'm not persuaded by the arguments of the later dating of this book. They have to do with uh, primarily external evidence, which isn't uh, particularly persuasive or conclusive in my mind. And that's fine. You're free to disagree with that. What's interesting is that the historical church, for the most part, until the 1830s, believed that much, though not all, of what is predicted in Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when, the, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and the Jews scattered out of their land. You can go through Revelation and look at specific things that Jesus told John would happen to the persecutors of the church, and I believe that you can see those things being fulfilled in A.D. 70. Later, We'll compare the predictions made in Revelation to the predictions that Jesus made in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. We've just been considering uh, the Olivet Discourse in uh, Mark 13. Matthew 24 speaks of the Great Tribulation. Across the ages, many Christian scholars taught that these predictions that had to do with this great tribulation were fulfilled in principle when the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. We'll later discuss why the date of Revelation is is so important to to this issue. But here we'll only note that if Revelation were written at the end of Nero's reign, So sometime toward the end of that reign, 66, 67, 68, um, then much of what is being written about here has already been fulfilled. We'll talk about a certain view of Revelation that, that holds this particular view. But if it were written much later then far more of it is in the future. Nevertheless, even if Revelation is thought to have been composed after the destruction of Jerusalem, it's clear that Matthew 24 is written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, so that the Great Tribulation should be seen as finding its primary fulfillment in the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jewish nation. And from this point of view, the major issue in interpreting the book of Revelation is this, have most of its predictions been fulfilled in the events of first century A.D., or are most of them still in the future? I'm going to argue that the former approach is most fitting, but in a way that I hope is charitable to those who hold that the latter is in uh, in mind here in Revelation. That is not a first century fulfillment, but a future fulfillment. But for the present, let's look at Revelation itself to see if there are indicators of a date of composition before the fall of Jerusalem, a destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. There are, I argue, a number of indicators that do so, and we'll look at five of these. First, the victorious Jesus tells John that he's coming soon. I hope you recognize this. Even as we read through this first chapter. He's coming soon, and he's going to deal with the circumstances that are confronting the church in that day. Namely, the persecution that's taking place, and he's going to deal with their persecutors. In verse 1, He says, which must soon take place. Verse 3, for the time is near. I'm coming to you quickly. Chapter 2, verse 16. I'm coming quickly. Chapter 3, verse 11. The third woe is coming quickly. Chapter 11, verse 14. Behold, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 7. Yes, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 20. If this book was written sometime in the middle 60s, then the Lord came in the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of Nero in A.D. 70, and he came within three or four years of its being written. If that's the case, he did what he said he was going to do. He came quickly. These are significant time texts in the book of Revelation that can't be ignored. They are time markers that we ought to take note of, and these ought to guide our interpretation. They form one reason to think that this book was written before AD 70. They indicate when many of the events it predicts would take place. Second indicator has to do with what's meant by Jesus coming. We'll later see that coming can be uh, e- used of uh, either of the last coming, the final coming, the second coming, however we describe it, and the Bible describes it in uh, in these ways, or, coming in the course of history. Its use as a coming during the course of history, uh, in time as we know it, is found many in many places in the Old Testament and many places in the New Testament. And indeed, that's exactly what we argue, isn't it? in Mark chapter 13, in the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus is speaking about his comings, and that there was a near-term coming in the course of history, and there was a future coming. In fact, Mark uses similar language to Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. I hope you recognize that that's language from the prophecy in Zechariah that we read together this morning. And I argued when we were going through the Olive Discourse uh, that the lang- this language that we find there, then they will see the Son of Man Coming in clouds with great power and glory is a reference to Christ coming in the course of history for judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. And so it's likely that Revelation 1, verse 7, refers to the very same judgment. Christ coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. The judgments come from Christ's direct intervention in which Christ, in a sense, rides not literally on clouds, but upon his judgments. Even as we saw spoken in the Old Testament as well with the use of of the same language. Third, a third indicator that these judgments uh, 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 that, that the book of Revelation was written before AD seventy took place is that in Mark thirteen thirty, in that all of this all of that discourse, Jesus says, "This generation shall not pass until all these things are fulfilled." Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple, the great disaster among the Jewish nation. So the Lord coming in this generation means that the people who were then alive when Jesus was speaking around AD 33 would experience this coming of Jesus in the course of history themselves. In other words, before that generation had died a natural death, the Lord would come in great judgment upon his enemies The Jews who rejected Jesus and who crucified him would be judged. But also his coming at that time would be a coming of great mercy and redemption for his elect people. That's certainly consistent with what we read about Christ's coming here in chapter 1. And verse 7. Those, every eye, it says, who pierced him. Who were those who pierced him? It was that generation. This is going to happen in that generation, Jesus said. He's coming in judgment. He's coming on the clouds. Here we're told he's coming on the clouds. And those who pierced him will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Who are the tribes that he's speaking about? He's speaking about the tribes of Israel. He came in judgment on the Jews. To be sure, there's going to be a final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that that's so sure. It's, it's, it's as sure as you and I are sitting here today living and breathing And having our being, that Jesus is coming. No clue whatsoever when, but he is. And when he does, it will be in a final judgment. And that will be the end of time. That will be the end of history, as we know it. But the Bible clearly, using apocalyptic language, and this is an apocalyptic prophecy. It's nothing if not an apocalyptic prophecy. And We need to learn to see the language in terms of the Old Testament. That's what we're going to be seeking to do as we work our way through the book of Revelation, is to see the relationship between this apocalyptic language that's used in the book of Revelation, much of it which is directly quoting the Old Testament Scriptures and those judgments in history that took place then, doesn't rule out a final coming of Christ. Doesn't preclude the book of Revelation speaking to the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simply to say that much of what is being spoken of here, took place before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Fourth, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, seems to consider the temple as still standing when Revelation was written just as we find in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The Christ, the Messiah, whom so much of Judaism officially rejected, this Christ will judge them. He will judge them and their now apostate temple worship, as his justice and his judgment descend upon them in the form of the Roman army in A.D. 70. There's no scriptural reason to postpone this historic judgment to some future rebuilt temple. Some argue that the reference to the temple in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, is figurative, which, is, which has more, I must admit, has more biblical merit, much more biblical merit, much more than nothing as to the future rebuilding of the temple. But the reference in chapter 11 and verse 2 to the nations treading underfoot the holy city for 42 weeks certainly appears to point us to what happened in A.D. 70. And we'll we'll get there eventually. Fifth, Revelation appears to have been written during the life of the sixth king or the sixth Roman emperor. Revelation 17:9 and 10 says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five has fallen. One is, and the other is yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. Who was the sixth Roman emperor? It was Nero, who died in AD 70, or rather reigned as emperor in Rome there from uh, the early 60s to 68 AD. So, granted, this is explained in other ways by different people, different interpreters, but in my mind, It seems pretty clear that this is a reference to the Emperor Nero and another reason for us to believe that the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 70. So think about what we should take away from uh, this introduction to Revelation, and it's as we contemplate the many hours that, uh, Lord willing, Uh, We're going to spend together in the exposition of this important, practical, last book of the Bible. A final word, uh, in a manner of speaking, from the triune God to his church. We're going to return now to reflect on its authorship. We've said it was written by John. John put pen to paper so to speak but ultimately it was written by the triune God and that means that it has immense authority that it carries with it immense authority and binding authority and that leads in turn to an essential application Namely, the necessity of listening, of hearing what the Spirit says to the church. If we listen, as we're walking together through the book of Revelation, through the apocalypse, we will see that the Spirit of God speaks volumes to the church today. He speaks words of encouragement. He speaks words of rebuke. He speaks great words of warning to us. He warns everyone that Jesus is coming. He's coming historically bringing judgment upon the nations. He's coming finally. And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee is going to bow to King Jesus, the conqueror, who comes Who is coming, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And that means that if we have not bowed the knee willingly, we will be consigned for all eternity. Not to an earthly destruction, that's bad enough, but to an eternal destruction away from the glorious presence of the Lord. And that means we should listen. We should be hearing what the Spirit says to the churches. We should be hearing individually as members of the church of Jesus Christ. We should be hearing as those who are apart from Christ, that there's nothing more important than to bow the knee to Jesus the King. He's alive. He's risen. He has the keys to death and Hades in his hands. And he's coming. This prophecy is divinely calculated to speak to us as the Spirit of God speaks to the church, even in our own day. May God grant us hearing ears. May we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, we call upon your name. We give thanks to you, Lord, that you've given us a hearing ear. Know, O Lord, that we would be consigned to hell forever if you didn't give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to hear. Help us to see what John sees in this vision. Help us to see it accurately. Help us to be humble as we... Consider uh, our own position and what we believe. Help us to be humble, teachable, pliable in your hands. Help us to bend the knee. Help us to conquer with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us in our conquering as we ride forth with him in victory. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Stand together.